I'm Silas Farley, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. For this two-part episode, I sat down with the iconic Edward Villela. We spoke about his journey into ballet, his celebrated career as a principal dancer with New York City Ballet, and his remarkable tenure as the founding artistic director of Miami City Ballet. A major theme of our conversation was George Balanchine's ballet, Prodigal Son, an early masterpiece that Balanchine revived for Valella in 1960. The Prodigal became one of Valella's signature roles, and his insights into this ballet are extraordinary. Before diving into the talk with Mr. Valella, I'd like to share a little more background on this particular ballet. Balanchine originally choreographed this work in 1929 with the French title Le Fils Prodigue, The Prodigal Son. The music was by Sergei Prokofiev. The ballet's libretto by Boris Kochno was derived in part from the biblical parable found in the Gospel according to St. Luke. The parable tells of a father with two sons, an elder, dutiful brother, and a younger, prodigal one. The prodigal asks for his inheritance early and goes to a far-off land where he squanders all his money and ends up destitute in a time of famine. After coming to his senses, he returns home to his compassionate father's embrace. In addition to the biblical text, Boris Kochno derived the ballet's libretto from a moment in a short story by Alexander Pushkin called The Station Master. Here, Pushkin describes three paintings that illustrate the biblical parable with these words. In the first one, a venerable old man in nightcap and dressing gown was bidding farewell to a restless youth who was hastily accepting his blessing and a bag of money. The second one depicted the young man's lewd behavior in vivid colors. He was seated at a table surrounded by false friends and shameless women. The last picture showed his return to his father, the warm-hearted old man, in the same nightcap and dressing gown, was running forward to meet him. The prodigal was on his knees. Kokno distilled the ballet into these three scenes that Pushkin describes. In the second scene of the ballet, depicting what Pushkin calls the prodigal's lewd behavior, Balanchine introduces a squad of creature-like men who are referred to as the drinking companions or goons. Balanchine builds their ungainly bodies into all manner of intriguing architecture. They represent one of the very few times in the Balanchine repertory where there is an all-male corps de ballet. In the same scene, Balanchine introduces a towering female character called the Siren, who ensnares the prodigal with her serpentine movements. The painter Georges Rouault designed the sets and costumes. One of the noteworthy features of his design was a set piece that over the course of the ballet is used as a fence, a ramp, a pillar, a boat, and as the table that Pushkin describes. Balanchine made the title role for Serge Lifar, who had also originated the title role in Balanchine's Apollo, and Balanchine made the role of the siren for Filia Dubrovska, an elegant, long-legged ballerina who would later become an anchoring faculty member at Balanchine's School of American Ballet. Prodigal Son premiered at the Théâtre Sarah Bernhardt in Paris as part of the final season of Sergei Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. Diaghilev died in Venice mere months after the ballet's premiere, and with his death, the Ballet Russe disbanded. This dispersion set in motion the course of events that would ultimately lead Balanchine to America. Balanchine would later revive Prodigal Son for his New York City Ballet, with Jerome Robbins and Francisco Mancion delivering distinct interpretations of the title role, and Balanchine brought the ballet back yet again in 1960 for a young Edward Valella. With that, let's turn to the first part of my conversation with Eddie. Enjoy. Edward Valella, welcome to the Hear the Dance podcast. It is a delight to have you on the show. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Well, we have, we have so much good ground to cover because you are one of the living legends of our art <laughs> form. And so this is just, it's just thrilling to be able to sit and visit with you today. My first question is, you speak so beautifully about physicality and your own metamorphosis through different kinds of physicality. So where did that journey begin for you and how did it lead you to ballet? Well, uh, I always had to move. I was just one of those guys. It was just ingrained in me to move. And certainly as a kid, I did a lot of sports. I, I did lots of 
lots of stuff. And uh, the thing is, my mother was an orphan, and uh, I had a sister who was a year old. And my mother wanted my sister to have as much as was available. So one of the things was this thing called ballet. And that's, that's really how I got started in this stuff. I, I got uh, dragged and screaming uh, to my sister's school uh, to watch her because I got knocked unconscious by a baseball hanging out in the streets, which I did very well. So, uh, you know, I had to sit and watch these little girls and their mothers and me. <laughs> I was not pleased. I was not a happy guy. And uh, they were doing all of these very sweet and lovely gestures and boring. Uh, oh my God, they started to jump. <laughs> that I knew how to do. <laughs> and I, I'm checking them out. And so I decide uh, to go in the back of the, the class and imitate what they were doing. And I said, that's, yeah, it's not so hard. And then the teacher went to my mother and said, get them out of here or put them in tights at the bar. So the next day, I was in tights at the bar. Now, you also speak so beautifully about turnout. And that's one of the foundational ideas of ballet. It's perhaps the first thing we learn and one of the last things if we ever get around to mastering. And so what was your impression of turnout? Because you had this raw physicality, this sports physicality, and then all of a sudden it was getting molded into a classical form. What did that feel like in your body and particularly as it relates to turnout? Well, first of all, I, I thought all of this stuff was pretty silly. Uh, but as time was going on, I began to see a, a structure of form. There was a logic to it. Uh, so I, 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 I started to get fascinated with it. And in my neighborhood in Queens, there were not too many guys wearing tights. So it was a, a new and unique experience. And then they had all of these rules and these regulations and structures and all of that. So I, I tried as much as I could, but uh, I was much more interested in flying around. I mean, that, that's who I was, what I was, what I always was, and continue to be at a very serious age now. <laughs> Ilya Dubrovska, who originated the role of the siren in Prodigal Son, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today, Prodigal Son, she was one of your teachers at the School of American Ballet. And what are your memories of her and your overall early impressions of training at the School of American Ballet and the faculty? Well, uh, first of all, I, I, I came from a local school in Queens, of course. And, and my mother had heard about this guy called Balaji. And he had this school, the School of American Ballet. So she decided she would take my sister and I had my sister audition. Uh, uh, she got a scholarship and, and as she was leaving, she said, you know, I also have a son at home who also dances, but eh, you know, I don't think he's very interested. And they said, oh my God, a son, a boy, can he walk? bring them in. So I, I get dragged into this place and suddenly it's, it's another world. It's, it's a very different circumstance, very serious. There are a lot of uh, famous people there and, and even men, Andre Glavsky, Igor Yuskevich, people like that. So it, it, it was impressive. I go in and I start taking class. Of course, I was the only guy in a, in a class of all girls. So uh, I was unusual. <laughs> I was, oh my God, a guy. Oh, 
Jesus. And uh, suddenly the, the door would open and people would come in to look at me. <laughs> I said, what? what did I do? <laughs> I don't even know how to do this stuff yet. And then uh, a couple of days later, the door opens and in walks this evidence. And uh, it happened to be George Ballinger. And uh, he was, of course, a, a remarkable individual. And he had such a manner, such a, I, I shouldn't say a swagger. It's just that he was. And uh, he, you couldn't take your eyes off him. And he watched me for a while, maybe 15, 20 minutes, and then he goes away. So that was, uh, that was my introduction into the, the School of American Ballet. But of course, in those years, I mean, it's a very, very long time ago. This was like 1946 or something like that. I mean, the previous century. Very, very different circumstance. And it was uh, not exactly the way it is today. And, and Balanchine would teach a major advanced class every Saturday. And the place was jammed. Everybody had to see this incredible individual. So, uh, you know, again, as time has gone by, I'm, I'm getting very impressed with all of this kind of stuff. And then I, I found out there were a couple of things I could do. Uh, one of them was job. Oh, my God, I could job. And, and so that grew a lot of attention. And, and I, I was feeling more and more comfortable. And I was beginning to feel part of this whole situation and circumstance. And I thought, you know what? Maybe this is something I would like to do. These guys look very stylish and uh, impressive. And I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll keep it in mind. And of course I did for a long time until my sister would have no more. <laughs> and she said, that's it, it's over, it's done with. I don't want to do this anymore. And, and it, it uh, really uh, upset my mother. My father, of course, was thrilled. I mean, he was, I mean, he, he had a very small trucking firm in the garment center. And I don't know if you know what the Garment Center is now, but oh my God, way back in the 40s, it was a pretty scary place. When I was 11, 12, and 13, uh, my father asked me to be his assistant. So uh, my father initiates me into the Garment Center. Now, at 11, I was a pretty small, pretty skinny kid. And I don't know if you've ever hung out in the garment center, but um, eventually what you have to do is be able to move three of these hand trucks. So you got a truck in front of you and you grab two pipes and you get truck in the middle and a truck behind you. So now you got three trucks full of garments, and then you had to move them. And to move them, you had to cross streets. And then you had to pop these things on the curb. And, and that was a whole expertise that I could handle at 11. Oh, boy. 12. Oh, man. <laughs> 13. Oh, yeah, I got it. I got it. And um, my father said, this is going to be an education for you. Well, he was right. <laughs> I got an education. Um, and it was not the thing I thought I would spend my life doing. I did not want to follow in my father's footsteps. But at any rate, uh, I survived it all until my sister quit. 
And then uh, it was devastating because my mother said, ah, I don't want, ever want to hear this word ballet in this house ever again. And I said, oh, I, I kind of like this stuff. And uh, I'm getting good at it. And they're very interested in me. And uh, my mother said, no. And of course, my father said, that's the end of it. And he said, uh, you're going to college. I said, oh, no. And I had made high school in three years so I could get into the New York City Ballet a year earlier. So I was poised. I was ready. I was 16. I I was ready. My father said, no. So you're going to college, and and you pick the college. And I said, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to run away. going to be a dancer. You know, I had all of these incredible fantasies about that. And, and I kept hanging around, hanging around, said, I'll never go to school, never go to school. One of my closest friends uh, had a brother who was studying at the uh, New York State Maritime College at Fort Schuyler in the Bronx. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go up, I'll, I'll take a look at this. It's an old Civil War fort and all these guys in their uniforms and big ship on the dock, which was our training ship. And the training ship took us to Europe and we went all over Europe, Mediterranean, everywhere uh, for two and a half months. In the summer, so we were we were going to college for uh, uh, about eleven months a year, uh, and at all the time I was uh, I I had it in my mind I, I got to be a dancer I, I really do and and in my last year there my last cruise I had gotten some records by Danila I got my my classmates to figure it out. And I used to do a class off these records, <laughs> trying to get myself out of what I was doing. Time keeps going by and I finally graduate and I, I give my degree to my father and I said, that's for you. And I said, but uh, I'm gonna be a dancer. He didn't talk to me for two years. I joined in the York City Ballet on my 21st birthday. And uh, Jerome Robbins hears that this kid who used to be here is now back at the school. And now, oh my God, he's joined the company. And Jerry decides uh, he wants me. I'm in, in the New York City Ballet for two weeks coming out of a maritime college, and he wants me to dance afternoon of a fall. I didn't didn't know how to partner. I didn't know where to put my hands. I I knew nothing. Your introduction to partnering had been taking those hand trucks through the garment center. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, the whole thing was wonderfully illogical. But at any rate, I, I work with Jerry, and, and uh, I, I dance with Allegra Kent afternoon of a farm. That was the beginnings of, um, wow, 19 years of, of uh, just a magical life. Time goes by, and uh, I try to get my father to come with my mom. Uh, he will not come the first year, second year. I said, look, okay, come. If you like it, great. If you don't, I'll understand. If you do like it, I'll leave word with this stage. Do I mean, you could come back afterwards and, you know. So he said, yeah, yeah. He said, well where we'll be sitting, where you'll be standing in the back, we wouldn't even be able to recognize you. Come in. Well, there were four ballets on, and I had 
roles in three of those two principles, one soloist. And uh, so I'm flying around the stage all night long, last ballet, and this curtain comes down. I'm on the stage, Balanchine comes on stage, he's showing me what I'm doing right and wrong. His curtain goes up, dark house, stage amp comes, puts the nightlight, and finally we finish our conversation. We shake hands, Mr. B goes off stage right, I start going off stage left, I suddenly hear something and see something. In the wings, there, are my mother and father in the wings in tears. So we, we stood on the stage laughing, hugging and crying. My father became a ballet to me. <laughs> he used to come to the ballet. So, you know, it was wonderful. Suddenly I had parental approval. It's a very nice thing, not having had it for a while. So it, it was uh, the beginnings of the rest of my life. I had a couple questions that relate to that time where you had those four years out from ballet at the New York State Maritime College. Losing that critical time in your training, I wondered if you might have insights or encouragement to the current generation of dancers and professionals whose own training and careers have been dramatically interrupted and rerouted by COVID-19. It's a similar kind of interruption, but different. And what, what insights or encouragement might you have for, for that group? Uh, it's heartbreak. It's, it's just a, a devastating heartbreak. For me, four years was something else. Uh, but again, I was a very physical guy, I had to move around. I was, um, won my letters in baseball. I was welterweight, uh, junior welterweight, boxing champion. You know, so, so I, I, I kept my body going, hoping to God that uh, as the years were going by, when I did return, something would be available. That's essentially the deal. That's how I kept it going. Uh, in terms of of today and and the virus and 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 all of that, it's it, it's just devastating uh, to watch these young people and 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 people in the middle of their careers in New York City who are trying to do bars and keep themselves going in New York kitchens. I mean, it's so, as I say, it's so devastating. And and for me, you know, having had four years of that stuff taken away from me, and then to think, oh my God, these poor guys are, are dealing with something similar, it continues to bother me. When I, when I finally founded a ballet company in, in, in Florida, I poured my heart and soul into all of this. And for me, uh, the purpose was to pass it on. And Balanchine had the best phraseology, which was, uh, this is what this stuff is. You pass it on. However, as you pass it on, it's body to body, but more importantly, it's mind to mind. And I have never forgotten that. And I'm trying to pass that on. You are dealing with something which is a mind-driven physicality. And keep that in mind forever, because it really is your mind. And it doesn't matter who you are, what you are. You don't just go out there and fly around. You have to use this thing (laughs) to allow the rest of it to provide for you. And it will be interesting to see with dancers having had this long hiatus from the act of performing, how maybe that's given people the space to develop the mind so that when they come back to the intense physical practice, there might be 
greater clarity or greater power in that mind-driven physicality. Now, diving into repertory, diving into your extraordinary tenure at New York City Ballet, I'd like us to zero in on the role of the prodigal son, which is one of your many iconic roles through your career at New York City Ballet. And Prodigal already had a storied history by the time Balanchine revived it for you in 1960. And at that time, how aware were you of the ballet's background when you first came to dance it? I did not have a clue. I had never seen it. I was totally unaware of the characters. Um, certainly, I knew the biblical uh, indications. So uh, uh, I was starting fresh. And, and quite frankly, I, I was standing. There was a wonderful ballerina, Diana Adams, and she and I were waiting for a class to finish to start rehearsing. And she said, congratulations. I said, about what? And she said, oh, oh, didn't you look at the board? I said, no, no, I didn't. She said, well, you're going to be dancing prodigal son. What? What? So that's the way things worked way back in those days. You were not made aware. You know, you just turned up, whatever happened, happened, and, and you dealt with it. So it was a, a very unique circumstance for me uh, to, to have a title role. I mean, as a, as a very young man, I mean, early 20s, I did everything I could. I got photographs from the, the sets. I looked as much as I could. You know, in those days, we didn't have things like that to look at. The person who had danced it before me hadn't danced it for years. So I, I, I was given nothing. The thing I was given, however, was that Balanchine decided uh, he was going to change those two opening variations and re-choreograph them for me. And I went, wow, wow, the genius of all time is going to mold these things on me, for me. Wow. So that was, uh, <laughs> put a smile on my face. Eddie, the renowned dance critic and writer Edwin Denby had seen your predecessors in the role of the prodigal, Jerry Robbins and Francisco Mancione. This is what Denby wrote about the, the ballet and its changes. He said, wonderful, very simple. The whole physical force of it wasn't so great as Valella's. And I don't remember that leap in the first scene that's always striking in Valella's version, nor even any spins as terrific as Valella's. But the line, the continuity of emotion was very strong and the development of emotion from scene to scene. So Denby's memory was serving him right because those leaps and spins weren't there with Monsignor and Robbins. They weren't. <laughs> they weren't. <laughs> well, you know, that, that was the hallmark of Palachi. He knew us. He knew us so incredibly well. And he only sought the best from you. And he choreographed specifically for you and around you. Um, uh, I, I can't, I, I spent 19 years uh, as a dancer under George Balanchine and having he and Robbins and a number of other guys make these incredible works designed around my abilities. Oh, my heavens. With that, could you describe the process of learning the role of the prodigal son from Balanchine? Balanchine was not the guy who spoke a lot. He didn't break it down for you. He didn't analyze it for you. Uh, now, the first guy I, I had worked with after two weeks in the, the New York City Ballet was Jerry, Jerome Robbins, and he would break everything down. And he would take every little element apart for you. 
and you had to do it exactly the way he wished. We're in uh, balancing made it to your comfort. So, oh, you can do, well, okay, I'll fix, don't worry. <laughs> what? <laughs> he had the fastest feet you could imagine. And he was an amazing dancer. I mean, he was a kind of grand, whatever, but boy, could he move. And his musicality was unbelievable. And to watch him, and that's what I did, I just never got my eyes off because his body spoke to us. And you got the style, you got the attack, you got the musicalities, you got it all. It was there, it was coming out of it. And if you didn't miss a thing and remembered everything, it was yours. Did he take a great deal of time teaching you the role of the prodigal or was it classic Balanchine oh. past exchange? Are you kidding? It, it was over and done. <laughs> I mean, bing, 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 bah. Okay, dear. Yes, yeah. Okay, thank you. Bye. <laughs> I mean, I, I think again, um, he chose you because you would suit him. Did he give you any clues throughout the rehearsal process to the style, to the different movements? Nothing. Just nothing. You know, he, he expected, if I give you this role, <laughs> it's me giving it to you. Why am I giving it to you? Because you suited. So I am making this huge investment in you because I believe you are suited to this thing. And uh, then you made of it as you could. And he would, he would show you a, a little gesture, you know, you know, how do you beg? <laughs> oh, my heavens. <laughs> it was incredible. I, I mean, just incredible stuff. Did he sprinkle any phrases into the rehearsal process describing any of the, any of the movements? Basically nothing. It wasn't until, oh, I guess maybe I... It was the third performance or so. And he came back and he started showing me, you know, how you do this and no, you're gonna do this and you put your head over here. And then over here, you, you, you know, just tiny little hints. That's all they were. They were, they were just hints. He never broke things down. And I, I remember uh, I was living at home in Queens at that time. And I, I remember being in the mirror and, you know, that opening gesture and trying to get comfortable with it. Uh, the other side of it was he allowed me to find my way through the role. And as time was going by, I got more and more comfortable with it. So it, it, it became uh, more and more purely logic to me. Whatever those simple logics were about me. And then this, this whole idea about this 16, 17 year old kid with this Saturn, this snake, and uh, Diana Adams was by Saturn. She scared the hell out of me. <laughs> I mean, she would give me ah, these vicious looks. And it, I got the character. <laughs> it's so interesting because Dubrovska, the original siren, wrote about the role. She said, and I think about a snake, which is not human, but which hypnotizes and bewitches. I use my eyes and the movement comes from my stomach. I had to perform without any feeling. I approached it like a snake. <laughs> well, sharp lady. <laughs> she was very, very smart. Very smart. And I've heard you say in different conversations about this ballet that 
there was a phrase about Byzantine icons as a clue to the ballet. And it's interesting because Rouault, the designer, and his mentor, Gustave Moreau, had incorporated the art of the Byzantine era into their own painting and design. So how did that inform your interpretation? One of his very short conversations with me was he, he was trying to get me to understand where all of these things had come from. And I couldn't quite get it. Uh, you know, again, my degree was uh, in marine transportation. <laughs> I was not uh, trained in that world. I, I didn't have a clue. I'm trying to figure it out, what he's saying to me. And, and uh, he finally got exasperated and he said, Byzantine icons, near Byzantine icons. Turned around, walked away, and I go, Byzantine, I, oh my God. Well, you know, obviously I got every book I could on Byzantine icons. And I started looking at that and I could see the entire portable were from Byzantine icons or the characters or the goons or whatever you wish to call these characters. He said, you know, protoplasm. He called them protoplasm. And he said, you know, it's no mind. They don't have a mind. As time was going by, he would drop something. And then I, I, I would incorporate, allow it to permeate me and, and become part of me. And then, of course, just listening to the music. In the middle of the valley, these things would start to occur to me. Uh, so I, it, it was uh, ongoing revelations. Things were being revealed to me. And I would immediately take them in and incorporate them. And uh, uh, the wonder of it all was when I walked away from that balcony, I knew how to create a role. And it, it, it serviced me the rest of my dancing time. Could we talk through the ballet from beginning to end, just like an overview and, and think through that arc of the character of the prodigal? And it's a, it's a lifetime of exploration to think of it. <laughs> but, but maybe we could go from the beginning, just that first scene coming through the curtain. And I had to find this, this uh, 16 year old guy. So what did I have to, to rely on? Well, I was 16 once, and what was it like as a 16-year-old kid? Oh my God, I'm gonna run away from home. Jesus, I, you know what? I was thinking about running away to become a dancer. So I, you know, started allowing myself. So, so that's essentially what it was. And I, <clears throat> I step out on stage and I'm thinking, oh my God, what a day this is. This is really incredible, incredible day. And I, I'm not going to deal with this. I, I've gotten money from my father. I've got two pals that are going to show me the world. And so here I am, excited. My sisters come and I say, no, 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 stop. This is, I can't wait and 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 this was uh, excitement And then, of course, the father comes in, all of that. And now he's bringing me back. And now I'm, I'm furious. So I have to go from being excited and thrilled to being furious. 
When I was a, a very young kid, I was the only Italian in my neighborhood. I had to learn how to fight. <laughs> I had to learn how to defend. And uh, I kept that with me all of my life. And uh, when I was at the Maritime College, you know, my, my father's two closest friends were former professional prize fighters. And they used to play poker every Friday night. And way, way back then, they used to have Friday night fights. So I could watch the poker game as a kid. It, it just became part of me. <laughs> it just became who I was, how I could act, react, fight, do all of these these things. It, it, the, and um, that's kind of what life is. What, what are you going to rely on? Your previous experience. If you weren't brought up with it, you got to figure it out. So I'm a guy who, who likes to figure things out. I still do. So it, it, it again was something that serviced me and it serviced me my entire professional life. And then you've, you've made this break from home. You have this rage, da, 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 beating against your thighs. You do this final spin and then you fly off the stage. And then the second scene, you descend into all kinds of debauchery with these drinking companions, with the siren. Talk to us about that second scene. <laughs> oh, oh. I was full of uh, bravado as the young man. And now I'm, I'm in a world I'd never seen before, characters I'd never seen before, didn't know anything about them. And suddenly they sucked me all along. And naturally, <laughs> they, they allowed me to get drunk <laughs> and then took total and complete advantage of me, threw me all over the stage, did all kinds of things. And I have to jump over this, the, 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 the table and then make a gesture. And then the musicality changes <laughs> and in comes the siren. <laughs> My partner, Diane Adams, was brilliant in it. Uh, she understood. At any rate, uh, now I had, I had to find my way through this next level of this character and his invitation into to debauchery. Again, you use whatever experience you have. No one told me about this stuff. So I, I just had to rely on what was in, in front of me and react. How would I react as a young kid being in certain unfamiliar circumstances and so on? And uh, I would... Uh, <laughs> I would think of myself in the garment center when I was 11, 12, and 13 years old. It was pretty scary stuff. I mean, these, these guys, um, yeah. I mean, my, my dad was a, not a very big man, but he carried a lead pipe and a cutting knife. I mean, uh, so, you know, you, you begin to rely on, again, whatever experiences you've had and see if they suit the ex experiences that you were expected to provide, how you would react. And then from there, you're literally stripped of everything. You've come in with bravado, you've come in with your father's money, you've come in with this incredible expectation of what the world has to offer. And by the end of the scene, you're back to the wall and stripped down 
And and then what? Well, <laughs> uh, what Bhattacharya said was crucifixion. It was like you were crucified. That suggested a few things to me. And uh, I, I used just that, that one phrase, crucifixion. I was crucified. And uh, how to deal with that. And uh, that allowed me to get through, uh, gave me a point of departure in terms of that particular scene and, and dragging myself off. And there's that moment when you hear it in Prokofiev's music and Mr. Balanchine has the men run, the, the goons run their fingers up and down you. Didn't Mr. B give you an image for that too? Well, uh, actually, he, he didn't give it to me, but he was giving it to the guys. He said, you know, like mice. <laughs> so I, I think, oh my God, I got all about mice. <laughs> so, um, uh, he didn't need too many inventive remarks. English was not his first language. So he didn't need a whole lot of words. So he would make it very clear to you. <laughs> and so I got it. I got that thing saying to me, oh my God, there's a mice running up my, my tortured body here. And then that last scene, which is just heart-wrenching for the viewer, could you, could you share with us what is the physicality and the emotion of the final homecoming scene? Well, uh, you know, just, just the idea of, of thinking, oh my golly, you know, now I'm back and my father, of course he's my father. Oh my God, no. He, He's not going to accept me. And you, you go back to the fence. And then you hear that note with the father reaching his head down. I mean, it, it is so sympathetic and so unbelievable. And as I turn around and see it, the rest of it uh, essentially comes from the thoughts and the ideas and what what I would have done uh, uh, just as a human being. And that's the way I proceeded and got there and my hands from, from behind my back. And as I'm struggling and getting closer and closer and closer, my hands are going out and out and out and out. And you have to time that so, so that you are close enough to clutch the back of the feet of the father and begin to pull yourself closer to him. And then just looking up at that whole uh, uh, sense of how you would look if you were looking up with this kind of hope of sympathy and then reach and find it. And then it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, you, you do have to have strength and, and, and help and support and make sure you don't knock the guy over. I mean, when he gets you up and uh, puts the robe around you and, and that last horn is oh, devastating. <laughs> Amazing work. I mean, just incredible work. And I literally just found this out today, Eddie, but... Prokofiev's second child, Oleg, was born during the time that Prokofiev was doing the orchestration of the score. Well, interestingly enough, Prokofiev didn't like Balanchine. Actually, Mr. B told me this. He, he said, you know, Prokofiev, not a nice man, didn't like me, and kicked me in a curb. <laughs> I said, oh my God. But, you know, they were different times then. And uh, great musicians were the gods. Choreographers, uh, 
<laughs> and so Prokofiev thought of him as this, yeah, this guy who puts steps to my music. So it's a, a different periods, different times. It was um, amusing to hear Balaji tell me he'd been kicked out of the theater by this musician guy. <laughs> it's interesting to think about him, you know, freshly with a, a new wave of fatherhood as he's doing the orchestration, just as that flavors the, the pathos and the richness of the, the father's music in the piece. And then the contrast of that with how he treated Balanchine in the process, because it, there was a, at the time, there was no royalties agency for a choreographer. It was only for the librettist and the composer because there was a material record of what they had done, unlike the choreographer. And on, on, on Apollo, Stravinsky had been willing to give some of the royalties to Balanchine, some of Stravinsky's own royalties to Balanchine because he respected what he'd done. But like you said, Prokofiev was like, the choreographer, I'm not giving him any of my money. Be done with it. And Mr. Balanchine never did another Prokofiev score. Uh, uh, well, you know, I, 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 was, I, I, I was a very fortunate guy. Uh, to be around during the time I was around. Here ends part one. My conversation with Eddie continues in part two, which is available now. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance. Thank you.